Uh, so if we haven't met, my name is Josh, and I'm the pastor here at Movement Church, and uh, the band just led us so well in a song that mentions Hosanna, this word that, that is repeated over and over again. If you're not familiar with that, it's kind of a way of saying uh, the utmost praise, the, the largest praise we can give something, and it has that divine quality. And this is something that was shouted that we read about in John chapter 12, something that we call here in the church Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, what happens is Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. If you remember, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, he has kind of gone away from Jerusalem intentionally. He was there and kind of stirred up the hornet's nest, as it were. And then he goes back north to his hometown, the the Nazareth region, the Galilee. And so he's there, and and he is uh, uh, coming back to Jerusalem. He enters as as a conquering hero of sorts. Uh, the people kind of line the street, the path going into town, and they shout Hosanna, and they, they praise him, and they don't want the donkey he's riding on to touch the ground, so they take their cloaks, their coats, and they put it down on the path. They, they pull palm branches where we get Palm Sunday and put it there for Jesus' donkey not to touch the ground. Here on, on Palm Sunday, we, we celebrate identity, that Jesus is worthy of being praised. We also acknowledge expectations and the ways in which expectations can fundamentally change our experience because the expectations were that this story was was kind of headed in a certain direction as we've gone through the gospel of john it it does feel as though it's building up to something building up to a climax building up to a moment when jesus is crowned king and understandably, at the time, the, the disciples are, are confused about how this is going to play out. They have these expectations that look a lot like what they would expect with someone to come and take power. But that Passion Week, that Holy Week, from John chapter 12, basically to John chapter 19, we see Jesus doing things that are very odd to those who heard it the first time. He washes feet. He washes feet at the Last Supper, this lowly, lowly thing. He tells them that he's going to be betrayed, that that some of his closest followers will deny him. He goes and he prays for uh, his followers, and he says that they will have trouble in this world. And he tells them that, that unity, unity is their calling card. Unity is how the world will know the message that Jesus came to proclaim. Not their teaching, not their piety, not, their, not their, their willingness to follow, but their unity, which implies that unity is something that's going to be hard because unity is entrusted not to their systems and their camaraderie and their, their kind of coming together. It's entrusted to God and God alone. Now, if you know the story of Jesus, you know next week is Easter, and this week we celebrate Good Friday. We celebrate the cross and the empty tomb. But I want us to pay attention to all the times when we see something that would at the time be surprising, that we would pay attention to the things that are perhaps confusing, that when Jesus could have gone the expected route, could have been the route that we would think would be the natural route for him to accomplish his mission, to essentially have success in carrying it forward, we noticed, we notice he doesn't. See, see, today's message is about this. Success versus faithfulness. Success versus faithfulness faithfulness i don't know if you're plugged into this kind of stuff but there was a a meme this kind of twitter prompt that was really popular back in october and it was basically how it started versus how it's going or how it ended up and people would do pictures kind of a before and after of 
different transformations. Maybe it was weight loss or, or maybe it was the, that first date and now they've got, they're married with that person with kids. But, but there's some funny ones I wanted to share with you. The first one, uh, it comes from this, a guy right there, Bruce Banner. Okay, Mark Ruffalo plays Bruce Banner. So that's how it started. How's it going? He turns into the Hulk, right? Or, or this one, this one here. Maybe this is you. How it started with the empty wallet and despite the stimulus checks or the tax rebates or whatever else, your wallet's still empty. Or, or how about this one? I guarantee you, you don't know who that is. This awkward young girl, you probably don't know who that is. In the next picture, you still may not know who it is, but that's Naomi Osaka, uh, probably one of the best tennis players uh, currently right now. And it's, it's, it's funny to see her, that, that awkward kind of, kind of uh, almost feels like that's a cynical preteen, right? You, you kind of look at her and say, like, man, she, you know, quit moping around. And then she comes and has all the success. My, my favorite of one of these has, comes from The Office. If you're familiar with The Office, Kevin Malone makes his great chili in that, that cold open of that episode, and he gets it up The Office, and he spills it everywhere, how it started versus how it's going. And then I kind of bent, bent the rules a little bit with this last one. If you saw the, if you see the news this week, there's a container ship that's kind of lodged sideways in the Suez Canal. And so maybe how it's going, maybe they should employ some balloons from up to get that sucker out of there. But we think about how it started versus how it ended up, or how it started versus how it's going. If you would think about this with the Jesus story, well, how did it start? It started maybe with the birth narrative. It started with, with in John chapter 1 of Jesus declaring, or, or John declaring that Jesus is God on earth, that he is the source, he is the logos. Uh, we see Jesus doing all these incredible things. Uh, maybe for you, you would think about how Jesus turns water into wine as, as that starting point, as the starting point. But Jesus does all these things. You expect the where it's going or where it ended up, if we stop the story right here, it's kind of surprising. See, Jesus teaches us things with what he says, but also with what he does. He teaches us things, he models things for us based on what he doesn't do or doesn't say or doesn't address. And so when we follow Jesus, we have to pay attention. We have to kind of form our lives and help our lives and our hearts be shaped into the mindset or the actions that Jesus gives us because Jesus is the clearest picture that we have of what God is really like. So we have to pay attention to everything. We have to pay attention even to those moments where it feels like Jesus is resisting what God has put in front of him. Last week, we left off the story of John, and it's the Last Supper, and they're celebrating this, this moment. He's, he's giving this farewell address, and he prays for unity amongst other things. And what we read right after this, picking up in verse 18, is that he will go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you can picture Jerusalem in your mind, there's, there's a city on a hill. This is Jerusalem, and Jesus is up here on the, at the, for the Last Supper. He goes down to the Kidron Valley, and he goes back up to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And so he goes there, and he goes there as kind of get away and to pray. And we read in Matthew chapter 26, we get a detail from this moment. In Matthew chapter 26, it'll be on the screen. So then he said to them, Jesus speaking, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. 
Correspondingly, we read something similar in John chapter 18, where the, 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 the mob of Roman soldiers led by Judas have come to arrest Jesus. They have placed their hands on Jesus. They're putting him shackles, about to take him away. And we pick up the story in John chapter 18, after Jesus has been praying this prayer, verse 10 says this, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, now a few things about this. First off, if, you're, if you haven't read the, read the Gospels a lot and thought about who Peter is, this tells you a lot about him. He's impetuous. He jumps to conclusion. He is action before thought, right? He is the guy that is fire, ready, aim kind of guy. He is somebody who's just jumping in. So, of course, he does this. But in Matthew chapter 26 and in John 18, Jesus refers to a cup. Jesus refers to a cup. And in Matthew 26, he asks God for the cup to be taken from him. In John 18, as he's arrested, as he's stopping Peter from, from, from trying to stop this arrest, he says that he, Jesus, is the one who's going to drink from this cup. In the ancient world, a cup represented authority responsibility a task a a calling it often had royal connotations that this was something that was given this was a task that was given to someone and jesus talks about this cup being heavy being overwhelming him in prayer and god would you take this away from me i think this cup is jesus calling to go to the cross See, Jesus is taking this identity, this cup, that he is going to be this sacrifice, and he is embodying it, but he is admitting to his Father he doesn't want to go through with it. Think about that. He doesn't want to go through with it, but he's willing to. Jesus knows what's ahead, and he doesn't want to go through with it, but he does. This group of Roman soldiers with some of the religious officials, lackeys, take him to Caiaphas's house. Now, Caiaphas is the high priest. This is the, the religious kind of de facto leader of the area. Now, Caiaphas was kind of installed by the Romans. And he, he kind of did what the Romans wanted. He had all of these lackeys there. Now, Jesus comes before him, and, and Caiaphas won't even see him at first. He kind of puts him on, on an outer room, and he's maybe talking to some people that are under him. And then in John chapter 18, we get this conversation that Jesus has with one of these lackeys, Ananias. And I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't do. Remember, he wishes, he desires that God would take this cup away from him, but he's willing to go through with it. And then notice what he says and he doesn't say. John chapter 18, verses 19 through 23. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Are those who heard me, or ask those who heard me, surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But I spoke the truth. Why do you strike me? Then Ananias sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. It's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't really defend himself. He doesn't really defend himself. He says, like, I, all my teachers are out in the open. Why don't you go ask them? He kind of, kind of throws it back in his face. Like, I'm not doing anything in secret. It's all right there. He's essentially not defending himself. 
Because think about all the times where Jesus is challenged by authorities, challenged by religious scholars, and they try to trick him and trap him in some sort of rhetorical argument, and Jesus flips things around and humiliates them and takes away the sting of their argument. Jesus could talk his way out of this, essentially, but he doesn't. He wants the cup to be taken from him, but he's willing to go through with it. So he frustrates his detractors. He frustrates his critics. He's kind of allowing the case to be built against him. Now, it being Passover week at the time here, the Jewish leaders know that they can't really execute someone. It kind of went against the, the law, but it also was just practically a bad idea. The, the, the city of Jerusalem would swell in size as, as people, as Jews from around the surrounding areas, would come into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they're there, and, and they're recognizing that we can't really kill this guy. We've got to hand him over to the Romans. We've got we to concoct something here. Because what Jesus is saying, that he is Lord, is implying that Caesar is not. And that is a political crime. But Jesus isn't raising an army. He's not a threat in that way. He's not going to take over Rome with the army at his back. He's doing something very different. So these religious leaders, they pass the buck to the Romans and a governor named Pilate, another puppet. In John chapter 18, we read in verse 33 and 37, this conversation that Jesus has with Pilate, this Roman governor. It said that Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came to the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And this goes on. This conversation goes on. And I feel like Pilate is searching for a reason not to condemn Jesus. I don't think it was because Pilate was incredibly virtuous, though that's possible. I think what's going on here is that Pilate doesn't want to be responsible for killing somebody that has so much love and admiration and following. I think Pilate is looking to kind of protect himself. I think he's also looking for a way that he doesn't have to deal with this headache. I, the Romans were, were really, really concerned about the festivals. And there's three big ones, and the Passover is the biggest one. And all these Jews come into their occupied city of Jerusalem, and it's just a powder keg, and the Romans are on edge. They don't want anything to upset the masses. And Jesus comes along. He is asked that, that confronting question, are you the king of the Jews? And he kind of sidesteps. He speaks obliquely, but he's there. And he's there, and he's kind of giving these answers that just allow the case to build and build. And maybe you're familiar with the scene that happens next. Pilate goes out to the masses. It's almost like he's standing on some steps outside of his palace, and he's talking to the masses, the people who have brought Jesus to him, the crowd that has begun to assemble. And he kind of goes into this propaganda trick where he talks about how the Romans, in all of their mercy, would release a prisoner at Passover. And so Pilate is trying to say, like, this is my out. This is how I solve this problem. I'll release Jesus to the people. Let them deal with him, and I'll score some points in the process. And so it's almost like Jesus, or it's almost like Pilate said, I'm going to take this Jesus of Nazareth, this guy who's healing, he's got a re reputation for turning water into wine and producing food out of nothing. I'm going to take him and 
put him up there. And of course, they will accept him. And we're going to get the, the guy in the lowest dungeon, the worst, worst criminal we have, this Barabbas, this guy who's probably a murderer, probably a terrorist, this guy who's probably killed Roman soldiers. And they brought him, bring him out there. And the people said, no, we want, we want Barabbas. Crucify that Jesus. And then Pilate tries to do something else. He's going to try to appease the crowd. So he has Jesus go, and he has, has him whipped and beaten. And he brings this bloodied Jesus back. He says, here, does this satisfy you? Look, we've done this. Justice has been paid out. And they say, no, you have to crucify him. Jesus refuses to speak in his defense. He refuses to, as he says, to allow his servants, the angels, to come and save him from this moment. And Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus is sent to the cross. And how it would work is that he would probably carry the cross beam he would probably carry the cross beam on his back from that palace and he would wind through the narrow streets of Jerusalem and he would pass along and if you grew up Catholic you've ever practiced the stations of the cross this this memorializes and helps us remember these moments and he's going through the city and it says that he goes just outside of the city to this hill and it's probably a dump it's probably a refuse pile it's probably where people threw their trash and through the rotting corpses of those who couldn't be buried or the livestock or animals. And there on the top of this hill, they had, they had erected this, this center single beam. And it was something that was used over and over and over again. See, the Romans were very good at this. And they employed these methods commonly and often. And it was something that was there, but it wasn't just one. It was actually three. There were, there were three people that were going to be crucified that day. And I would imagine in the Roman contingent that managed this, there was a guy whose job was it to prepare these crosses. And he was really good at it. And he probably came up with different modifications to, to hold people in place, to hold their hands in place, to hold their feet in place, and to kind of prolong this. And he probably got really, really good at it. And he would inter introduce the new things. Maybe he, 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 put a, he drilled in the hole and, and put some rope in there so that he could be bound before he's nailed with spikes in there. And maybe they came up with different ways to kind of play up the crowd and get people to, to pay attention and see that this is what happens when you oppose Rome. But I think the people in this crowded city, I, don't, I wonder if they even took notice. Put yourself in their spot. You were there, and here it goes. Someone else to be crucified. Someone else is going to be punished. The Romans do this all the time. I don't want to look. I'm going to go on with my day. I'm going to compartmentalize, and I'm going to ignore this. I think as Jesus was going to the cross, it kind of felt like just another day in Jerusalem. And so imagine you're one of these disciples. You think back to how it started. You say, this is where, this is where we are. This is how it's going He's going to die up there with these common criminals. He's going to go up there and he's going to die and no one's going to stop it. He's not going to stop it. He's there. And John tells us that as he's hanging on the cross, he looks out to this probably small group of people that are there and his mother is there. And Jesus uses that term that gets translated in English as woman. And we see this over and over again in the Gospel of John. And we say that its closest translation literally is ma'am. But this is a honorific. This is, has dignity to it. And Jesus uses this term for his mother at the wedding at Cana. When she comes to him and says, Jesus, do something. They're running out of wine. And he says, woman. And it kind of feels like this gruff thing, but it's actually an honorific. 
He extends this honorific woman to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the outsider who is seen as less than human. He, he extends this to the woman who is caught in adultery. And he extends this here to his mother. John chapter 19 says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved, which is how John refers to himself here, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And this seemingly is how the story is ending. It's not supposed to go this way. How it started versus how it ended. It's not going the way they had hoped. I don't think it's even going the way that Jesus really wants it to go. Think about your life. Think about a time when there was so much optimism. Maybe for you, you started a new job, a new relationship, you just graduated, you just moved to a new place, you, you started some new practices, new habits, and you had all of this incredible hope. You just welcomed kids into the world, you just gotten pregnant, you just were ready to start something new. How did things turn out? How did things turn out when you look back to that optimism? That naivete, that, that hopeful moment that you had, you said, this is going to be great, it's all going to work out. Now sure, some of that in some cases might be true, but how often does life kick us in the face, cynicism comes in, cynicism comes in, and we're not achieving, we're not succeeding like we hoped. The grades weren't as good as we had hoped. The status, the paycheck, the family, the health. We're not having success there. We define success as kind of taking the next step in our master plan. So what do you do when you have these big detours or it stops altogether? We define success in terms of the, the, how many people we lead or, or how many customers we have or how many promotions we've received or our title, our grades, even our weight. You define success based on your relationships, your marriage, and what your kids have or have not done. And we've all encountered maybe that coworker or that friend who is so cynical they're just exhausting to be around that no matter what they can find the negative. We've seen the dad at the little league field or next door to, next to sitting in the bleachers at, at a basketball court yelling at their kid because the kid can't do something that they couldn't do either. We've seen the people who almost have shame when we ask them what they do for a living. And they kind of look down and they downplay it. We see that, that frustration that people have when they ask us once again, oh, are you seeing anybody? Or when are you going to have kids? See, success as we define it, it isn't always there. It doesn't always happen. And I think on the cross, Jesus is wrestling with this idea of success, and I am confident that his disciples are wrestling, wrestling with this idea of success. On the cross, as he is dying, I'm not sure Jesus fully knew what his father was up to, which is a radical departure from the rest of John. Because the rest of John, we see over and over again, Jesus talking about the unity between him and the father. But as Jesus is dying, John records that he yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's a callback. That's a reference. That's a quote from Psalm chapter 22. Hear these first two verses of Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. 
My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And look how it turns at verse 3. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In, your, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. See how this turns. See that as Jesus is referencing this, I think he's referencing the entire psalm and the honesty, the brutal honesty of crying out to God, God, you haven't shown up. I have not had success. I have not gotten, gotten what I thought I was working towards. I have struggled. I feel alone. I feel abandoned. Yet, in verse 3, God, you, you are on the throne. You have shown up for people over and over again. You've shown up in my past. You are gracious. You are loving. You are close. The beauty of the Bible is not that it creates this airtight argument for God. The beauty of the Bible is how human it is. How human it is. How you can see the anguish and the conversations that we all have and all experience right there on the page. How many times have we said that? God, show up in my life. And then if we think about it, well, God has shown up. God has provided, but I wish he would do it right now. I think Jesus, as he's dying on the cross, is experiencing that. He's experiencing that because he's, he's not sure what's going on. But he, Jesus, he doesn't have a success mindset. If Jesus had a success mindset, this is where the story would end in frustration and anguish. See, the success mindset that all of us can have, that all of us are tempted to have, that all of us have had at some time and will again, is incredibly selfish. The success mindset asks the question, what do I get out of it? What's in it for me? The success mindset goes to a relationship, even a relationship with God, and says, how can you serve me? How, is, how God, are you going to take care of me? How are other believers helping me? How is the church helping me? A success mindset says it's all about me, and everything else is just a transaction waiting to happen to benefit me and my success. See, Jesus could have had that success mindset, but he chose something else. He chose faithfulness over success. See, faithfulness over success. See, what happens at the cross is this great substitution. It's this great substitution. See, Jesus dies to defeat sin. Jesus is the sacrifice to take the punishment for sin of all time, of all people. Now, not just your personal sin, though that's included. Not just your personal sin. Don't just see that, because that can get into that success mindset. But see that these are, these are sins that are bigger than that. These are the big, huge, systemic, societal sins that we could ever think of. Things like the Holocaust, the slave trade, every purge, every putsch, every revolution, every, everything where people are wiped out or left to starve, or forced from their home and made, made to be refugees. It also covers all the sins of a broken world that we have to face, like diseases like cancer or ALS, or the brokenness that so many of us experience directly or indirectly, like infertility, mental illness, and suicide. See, see what Jesus does is die on the cross so that all of that, the sting of it, is taken away and life is able to come from death. Now, I've heard people say, how barbaric is that? That God the Father, who loved his son, would send his son to die as this be-all, end-all sacrifice? Is that just a form of cosmic child abuse? I would say no. 
I would say no, because God is always speaking to us in ways we can understand. And at the time, people understood that if there was something that was costly, if there was something worthwhile, there had to be something given up. The sacrifice made sense to them. A sacrifice made sense to them. But also understand this, that this isn't some sort of divine child abuse. That there are consequences for things being wrong. And God erases this. Not through success, not through achievement, not by overcoming, but with faithfulness. Through faithfulness. God goes to the cross in Jesus because he says, I don't want to do this, but if it's your will, I will. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet, I know you are enthroned. I know you are God over all. So the question we have to ask is, is our life more about success, however we define it, or is it more about faithfulness? Is it more about us embracing this life of love, of service, of sacrifice, or is it about us amassing power and accolades? Is it more about us being open-handed, being generous, by being fully present in God's will, or is it about us just asking God over and over again, what's in it for me? Do this for me. Do this for me. Now, of course, God wants to give us good things. Of course, God wants to love us and give us the good things and answer prayers. But I think that when we embrace that success mindset, we fail. We struggle. We get in the way of the act of love that we see at the cross. We get in the way of this act of adoption that's going on that jesus is inviting us into this holy family who's changing our identity see jesus doesn't come and entrust us with the keys of the kingdom he doesn't come to us and entrust us with the work of building his kingdom he doesn't entrust us to save people or people to be forgiven he doesn't come to come to us and entrust us to give life to others in the full here and now and for eternity jesus doesn't entrust us with unity jesus entrusts all of this to the Father. Jesus entrusts all of this to the Father. Because look how Luke records these last words. In Luke chapter 23, verse 46, there on the cross, it says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last his dying breath is saying i don't want to do this but i'm committing my spirit to you father i am i am on board with whatever this is knowing not what happens next knowing not what's ahead of me see jesus doesn't want you to succeed jesus doesn't want you to see that the gospel isn't a, a success template the gospel is not something that if you apply to your life life will be easy no the gospel is an instructional instruction manual for death. The gospel is an instruction manual for death. Because what does Jesus preach? What does Jesus say? That we are all to be serving, that we are supposed to be dying, that we are supposed to be uh, allowing God to work in our lives. We are supposed to be submitting to the Father. That life is found not in achievement, but life is found in death. See, at the start, in Bethlehem, the wedding of Cana, when he calls the disciples who are just amazed at this man of teaching and intellect who knew all this stuff, how it started was full of all this promise. 
And people, I'm sure, followed and they got on board because they said, this is going to be good. Look at all the things that can be accomplished. And it ends here in death. And it begins with the promise, with the promise of life. So you stop doing things for God. Stop doing things to try to get God to be happy with you. Stop trying to earn something. Stop looking for the transaction that you're going to get something out of this. See, following Jesus isn't about what benefit you receive, though there are benefits. It isn't about what you get out of it. It's about connecting with God. It's about experiencing the divine. It is about God getting what God wants, and that requires us to be faithful, which is going to require you to die, to let go of the expectations of success, to serve, to sacrifice, and to love. May we be a faithful people, a people of unity, of service, of love. May we be a people who follow Jesus to the wedding at Cana and to the foot of the cross. May we be a people that even this week, our prayers would begin to change. We ask for God of things all the time. We ask God to show up in the life, in our lives and lives of others that we love. But may our prayers begin first with the question, God, what am I supposed to do? How can I serve? How can I submit? How can I be faithful? Because that is ultimately what we're called to do. Let's pray.